We are marching along in week three of a series called One Another, God's Heart for All of Us. All of us. This is what God, uh, God wants for his church. And we're going to go through different one another passages every week. Our community groups, if you're in one, are going through those conversations as well. If you'd like to consider one, you can look at the board in the back, kind of that little group, group wall, and find one near you, get in touch with the leader, and find a way to connect. Uh, today's passage, it's called Welcome One Another, but there's much more to welcome one another in the context of Romans 14 and 15 than just wave at them. Hey, neighbor, glad you're here. There's a lot more in Welcome One Another that exists within this than meets the eye. I'll give you a couple of examples of how, for me, worship services are always interesting places. Now, I don't usually, I mean, there's always kind of the joke of, man, I'm going to get emails about that. I don't usually get post-Sunday communication. So this is not a statement about me in any way, really. Like, I don't get those. You guys are uh, often great about not sending them, which is very helpful. But there have been times over however many hundreds of Sundays I've been in church ministry where I have received either feedback toward me or feedback about the church or feedback about another staff member or feedback about another ministry. I had a guy one time pretty mad at me, pretty hot, because I had made a comment that was really to distance myself from a political goings-on, and our church could have been blended or confused about where we stood, and I tried to say something about that, and man, did I hear it. I heard it from a guy who was in my face after church that week. I mean, I've never, I have never, in, on a Sunday morning, like, gotten serious with a congregant where I've been like, stop, right, but like, I, I was not going to have it because it was just again and again and again and again. And I had another mentor beside me who was probably praying the whole time. Um, but it was interesting how it wasn't ever the preaching. It was, a, it was that I was trying to not, I was actually trying to not say something political. And it, the fact that I was trying to do that was actually what was met with resistance. And of course, any, any church that plays modern worship or has uh, a sound system of any kind You'll usually get the comments on volume, song selection, darkness or lightness, all of those things that can show up in a room. And you go, well, I like it when we sing it like this, or I don't like it when we sing it like that. I like this song, not that song. I like this volume, not that volume. And it kind of moves around all the time. But I, you know, after all these years of pastoral ministry, one of the hardest things to do, and both for me and probably for you, is live with people who have opinions about things that are non-essential. It really, like, that is what kills churches. It's not, do you believe Jesus Christ came in the flesh? We're like, amen, Jesus came in the flesh. Uh, do you believe that, whatever? Do you believe that uh, he was born of Virgin Mary? Yeah, we could quote the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ is only son. Like, we could say all of those things and check all the boxes, and then it's like, okay, um, but we're not going to do Christmas Eve this year or something like that. And it's like, what? And then it's all done. It's over. Um, or you have a screen? We don't do screens. Like, it, it's that. So it's not the core of orthodoxy that makes somebody the most frustrated. It's the other things that have replaced as uh, one as more important than the other. That's always what I have found. Like I don't have people going, Hans, I really think that in that sermon you didn't say something that was you know, about the character. I, I, I think you said that Jesus wasn't fully God. Like I don't get those statements. It's like, man, I really, you know, I wonder if that's really how this is going. Or I wonder if our church is really going to 
care about these kinds of things. I'll list a few here in a moment, but it's always funny because it's like somebody must be right and somebody must be corrected. Like we have the spiritual gift of correction. And, and that that's what God wants from us is the constant correction of one another. I actually don't see a lot of correct one another's in Scripture, but we all feel like we have the, the gift of correction. And it's funny because as you actually go into the book of Romans, this is also, I believe, in Corinthians, but in Romans in particular, he goes into how we bear with people, how we serve them, serve them and deal with them, uh, and that it can happen in a way that is honorable. You know, like, like how do we as a church with varied backgrounds and varied opinions and varied convictions and varied experiences and varied giftedness and all of, how do we as a church honor Jesus with how we accept one another, which is another way of that idea of welcome one another. How do we do that? And that's what we'll be in today. How do how does God want his church to pursue unity, I'll say it like this for now, in matters of conscience or in matters of liberty? And I use those particularly because there are areas that are, that are like non-negotiable areas of the Christian faith. And there are areas of expression or areas of conviction where they are up for debate and you need to honor your own conscience before the Lord with them. Seek the Lord, know where you land, and live that out faithfully. That's what it will be. So we will be in Romans 15, 1 through 7. And that's the end of the book. Now, if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul's kind of way he approaches a lot of his epistles, is he gives all of these, these truths first, and then he moves them to applications. Now, we're going to be in the application part. This whole series is all about something one another, right? Like it's a command, blank, you know, like, like, like love, serve, honor, encourage, uh, forgive. All of those are there. Correct isn't in there. I looked. I tried to even insert it, but it's not. So what we'll do is we'll go through the book of Romans very, very briefly. I'm just going to give you some categories to think through it. We're going to actually go to the middle of that passage, 15, 1 through 7, as kind of the meat of the idea. And then we'll go to the bread, which is on both sides of that. So we'll go to kind of the motivation in the middle. And then we'll go to the top and the bottom of that passage, 15, 1 through 7, to get it. So what's Romans? What, how, why does he base a specific activity on how the church should operate? And then what is that operation, operational kind of heart that Paul would have for the church? So very quickly, with Romans, there was one commentary in particular that just talks about it and organizes it in the idea of righteousness revealed. He gives these categories of righteousness revealed. Righteousness revealed in condemnation. Everybody is condemned. Everybody, Jew and Gentile, both are condemned before God. Righteousness revealed through justification, God making sinful men and women right with him. Righteousness revealed in sanctification, as you kind of get into the middle third of the book, about how they are to live, or what Jesus has done, and how they're free from sin. And then, not to keep on sinning, as so many people like to think, well, if I just sin more, I'll have more grace. And so he's trying to talk about how you walk with the Lord. So everybody has sin. Jesus has come to provide justification, righteousness for all who have faith. All who have faith, some specific things have happened in their lives that free them to live for God differently than under slavery to sin and law. So that's that middle section. Then it's righteousness revealed in sovereign choice. And God, uh, Paul speaks about 
Israel, the nation of Israel, the hardening of people and God's election of the saints, and really the justice of God in doing as he sees fit. And then finally, there's righteousness revealed in changed people, transformed living. Those are the movements, and you can actually see a pretty simple discipleship from like an unbeliever to maturing believer, even as that book unfolds. And so you start far from God, recognizing your, dis- your distance from him. But Jesus' work has come in to save us. through By faith, we are able to live freely for him. There's a question about, well, God's choice, if God's doing this, what, you know, what, what do I do? And Paul has to correct that and give some understanding that God's not done with the nation of Israel. And then it moves to, how then do I, how do I live? That's where we probably remember Romans 12, like offer yourselves as living sacrifices. That might be the one we remember the most. But then in 14 and 15, we get this discussion about the way Jews and Gentiles would operate together. And now just imagine somebody shows up with a rather robust worshiping life, meaning the Jewish background, Jewish history, they had days that they would worship, they had festivals that they would participate in, they had times that they would travel, they had a unique Sabbath day, all of those things that came from their experience. And the Gentiles are like, whatevs. I mean, like we have our own stuff, but we were worshiping idols, and so it's a little different than just being you know, being rooted in, and Paul even used the language of the Gentiles have now been grafted into what God is building through the olive branch or the olive tree that was what he began in the beginning. And so you can imagine putting all those people into the same room, it would be much easier just to split. I mean, it's a church split waiting to happen because some want some specific things out of their life and want their, they want their church to look a certain way, and others have different opinions on the way that their church should look, and none of these opinions are actually superior in that they are orthodox hills that you should die upon. And Paul is trying to help them see that there are certain hills to die on, and there are other hills to leave alone. And there's a way to operate even when you leave it alone. Now, I said we're going to do meat and then the outside. And so we're actually going to look at Romans 15, 3 and 4 with this idea. And the argument, you're going, this seems weird just to kind of jump into the middle, but let me explain why. We have this idea, Christ's work, the work of Jesus, how he lived, how he died, everything. It resulted in good for others. That's going to be his argument. Paul's going to quote Psalm 69, 9 in this part of Romans 15. But in verses 3 and 4, he's going to give a reasoning for what Jesus did. Jesus did something that was for others. That's his main argument. Jesus did something for others. And the thing that he did for others was for their benefit, not for Jesus' benefit. So you look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In quoting Psalm, righteous living, And so Paul is taking this idea of Jesus is living for the glory of God. John talks about that all the time. And those who were mad, it ultimately falls on Jesus and he is sacrificed. He is reproached by man. And and Paul uses this to go, Jesus didn't live for himself. He didn't pursue life for himself. He He did not, he wasn't concerned about pleasing himself. He didn't go, well, I want to church that and fill in the blank. And then Paul uses this idea from the Old Testament to say, now for whatever was written in former days, previous to now, in Christ, which he's writing to the church in Rome, 
was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. And so he's even giving this way of going, as we read the scriptures, we're seeing things that allow for us to live today. They allow for us to recognize something about our faith in a way that we are to operate. And so that idea, Christ's work, what he did, how he lived, and even the fact that he took the reproach that was due us, that resulted in the good, in good for others. Jesus laid down his life. That matters. Psalm 69.9, David was suffering because of his zeal for God. Christ had zeal for the Father and suffered for it. Christ did not consider his own comfort superior to the work that was before him to obey his Father so that many might believe. The result of that, as Paul says, that we are to learn and see what has happened so that we should know how we are to operate, what we are called to do. Now, in this example of Romans 14 and 15, there's a specific way he is using it to help bring to bear the issue of secondary matters. They're still matters of conscience, but they are not matters of orthodox urgency. And this is where it challenge, this passage challenges me. I think it will challenge you because we, have a, we often have a different way. Again, the spiritual gift of correction. We love to tell others that they're wrong rather than just be with them, rather than just bear with them. So this is actually the, then, if we have the motivation from Jesus, the idea that he gives before and after this is that we should bear with and welcome those who differ from us, from you, Indisputable matters. Now, again, those are weird words, disputable matters of conscience. We don't use those words all the time. The reason I say that is because I couldn't find a better one. I just couldn't find a better way to say it. But matters that are disputable. And what do I mean by disputable? Well, he's going to give some examples in Romans 14 and 15 that we'll look at. And then we'll go, well, we don't have the same kind of thing, so what are they for us? This is where it gets a little wild. Romans 15, 1 and 2. He gives an idea. We who are strong... Have a, what's that word? Have a what? Re, say it out loud. Obligation. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now you know why he uses the Psalm 69.9 right after this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with those who are weak. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, it's interesting here, and we're going to talk about strong and weak for a moment, but here's what I often find in church life, is that there are no weak people, because we look at weakness as wrong. Paul had an opinion, and his opinion he thought was the right opinion, and it was, I think, the more fuller application of gospel truth, but he doesn't try and correct the congregation here. He actually tries to give them a method for understanding life together which is not a method of correcting, but to please someone else. And he even uses the example of stronger and weak as to say, the stronger have an obligation to serve the weak. So it's, it's like this. If I'm working out with Elton, he's a little stronger than I am. And so if he puts weight on the bar, and I go, bro, I can't lift that weight. And I go, no, you can I'm like, all right, I have not benched over 180 pounds in my life, so 225 is not coming. No, you can do it. I'm sure you can do it. 
what's going to happen? He might even help me get, get that thing up, and then <laughs> I'm dead. I, I Asphyxiation, it's all over, game over, no longer alive. Why? Because I didn't want him to think I was weak. I didn't want him to think that I, didn't, I couldn't lift it. I didn't want him to think that I had, a certain, you know, I had certain weaknesses in me, and so rather than admit them so that we could take some weight off of the bar for me, I just try to muscle through it and look strong when really I'm not. So thing one we have to realize is that every congregation has people who are stronger in their faith and weaker in their faith, and that that is not bad. That is not bad. They have those who are more fully convinced of their freedoms in Christ and those who are a little less convinced of their freedoms in Christ. And that is not bad. Paul is not trying to correct them in this. He's trying to harmonize them in this by giving them a way to live that is welcoming of one another. So again, I can't lift it. If you admit to your brother you can't lift it, then they should never put that burden on you to have to lift it. But it only happens if you can have the right spirit of honesty about your own faith, honesty about where you are and what you need. And then the idea would be we should all be glad. Elton would go, absolutely. Like, I have no desire for you to lift an unbearable load. So let's put weight on the bar that you can lift and we'll go from there. And if that's all you lift forever, great. That's the hard part. So that's what he says. Now, this is built on Romans 14. All of Romans 14, and that's why he says we have an obligation. He goes to these different ideas that happen. I'll just give you a few. There's different approaches to food. That happens again in Corinthians. Like, like, like people feel, well, this food was, was, was like given to an idol, and now we sell the meat because the sacrifice has happened. The sacrifice has happened, and it's sacrificed to an idol. One person, that would be Paul, goes, it's still just meat. Like... So you might as well cook it and eat it because it didn't do anything. There's nothing here. It's not harmed. It's still just meat. And so people would be in each other's homes and, you know, you just go admit where you are. So they had different approaches to food. Some really didn't feel comfortable eating meat. Some didn't like meat sacrificed to idols. This isn't about gluten intolerance. This isn't about any of those things. Like, it's not that, right? Like, it's not about dietary restrictions. It's about a conviction to go, I actually feel like I am dishonoring God. If I do this, I'm dishonoring God if I eat meat. I'm dishonoring God if I don't worship in specific structures. I'm dishonoring God if I don't recognize this holiday. I'm dishonoring God if I don't, you know, with my Jewish background, live by that calendar a little. It just, I just can't do it. It's such a part of me that I feel like I would be dishonoring and not glorifying to God to do it. Now, what would end up happening is that the stronger, because of their position of strength, usually are the position that people would want to submit themselves to. So what would happen is the weaker brother or sister, the one who really did not feel as if they were honoring God by pursuing a certain way of worship or pursuing a certain way of eating or anything like that, they would, they would then violate their conscience to go along with those who were stronger. rather than honor those who were weaker. So because of that, they would 
live in this kind of tense way where the weaker brother who had a specific way of worship or a specific view of, uh, of, of, of life in Christ or a specific way that they really thought it really honors God if I'm able to you know, recognize this day or have this kind of celebration. Paul would recognize that as glorifying to God because it was done in a good conscience. It was done in a way that honored God rather than try and correct a position. This isn't about legalism. That's Galatians. This is about honest and true worship of a congregation of varied maturities, varied backgrounds, and varied understandings of what it means to honor God with my life. And these issues existed in the same church. Different parties had different views. One recognizes all things as clean, and another views certain foods as unclean, and it would be an issue. One needs to worship in certain ways and not observe certain, not observe certain situations. Other does not. Uh, one needs to worship in certain ways. All issues of conscience. And Paul wants both people to honor the other. Both people to honor the other. Now, we feel so far removed from, like, you, you go to HEB and get your meat. You don't know anything about it. You've probably seen a documentary on it. But that's all you really know. And like, so, so like, you, you're like, like, it's just a different kind of thing, right? Gary grew up killing and eating. We just grew up going to the grocery store and being like, I think it's fine. You know, like, it seems good. You know, I don't know who waved a hand over it or who waved a wand or anything like that. But they have whole, like, they have whole butcher shops that would be kosher. They prepare it in a certain way and you know it's safe. There'll be certain symbols on the food. You know, can I eat this? Still, if you go in, like, you'll find those kinds of things. But how do we do this today? Because we're kind of, well, you know, we're pretty uh, libertarian people. Not a political party, but we're just people of liberty. But here are ways that this happens in the church. Uh, some are very big Lord's Day people. Like Sunday is Lord's Day, and we don't do anything on Sunday but go to church and stay home. And they, they really are doing that as a way of worship. We worship with our church family, and then we stay back, and we're very calm, and we don't do a lot of extra stuff, and that's what we do. We may not turn a TV on. We may have totally different rhythms to how we live Sunday out. And others are like, doesn't really matter to me. I'm going to go to church, and then I'm going to go hunting, and then I'm going to go fishing, and then I'm going to go to altitude to the trampoline park for a birthday party. Like, like, it, like it really is like those kinds of differences. Some people have specific views of holidays. They, you know, and so, so their Christian life is built perhaps around the Christian calendar. And they want Ash Wednesday, and they want to have specific, even maybe Maundy Thursday, and they want to have a Good Friday service, and they want Easter to be spectacular. And others go, Jesus is always risen. Right? Like, it, Jesus is always risen, and Sunday is always a celebration of the resurrection. So getting up a little more for one day doesn't matter that much to me. That's usually my camp. I'm like, I'm, I'm like that with birthdays. I'm like, you know, like, happy birthday. I, I, if you have a birthday and I know it, I'll tell you. But, like, very often in our house, about once a year, it's just whoever Courtney and I recognize that day as our anniversary. And she's like, hey, happy anniversary. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you beat me this year. But next year, it's mine. So have different views of holidays, different views of alcohol. That is absolutely one. Different views of, of what is permissible and what is impermissible. Different views of education. Where they, like, it's an issue of conscience. I can't send my kids to this kind of school, or I can only send my kids to this kind of school. Some it's an issue of conscience for mission. Others an issue of conscience for discipleship. 
you're not going to come to agreement on that. Like, 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 the, 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 like those are different views. And don't even worry about which one's weaker and which one's stronger right now because it doesn't matter. Like, like sussing out which one's which because there's an application that exists for everybody regardless. So different views of education, different views of civic engagement. Some people go, we, we never talk about anything. And other churches are like, we talk about everything and our pastor's going to be on the news about it. Like, like that's what we want. And so, right, like in different views. And some people really love that level of civic engagement. Others really love that when you come in, you don't know who's who. All of those are there. It, now, now, bear with me. Say a prayer for your own heart. Say a prayer for mine right now. Okay. In no previous time in my pastoral life did I see the weaker and stronger brother thrown around more than when people were asked to wear or refrain from wearing masks. Everybody talked about who was stronger and who was weaker. And some weaker, some stronger, some this, some that. Some people really viewed mask wearing as a sign of fear. You're fearful. And others would see non-mask wearing as a sign of strength. I have yet to figure out which one's weaker or stronger in that one, honestly. Just have yet to figure it out. I don't think I will. But that verse got thrown around all the time about who's weaker and who's stronger. Now, here's the thing about where Paul is headed with this whole thing, is that if you view your position as stronger on an issue of conscience, and there are times where I think you can go to the Word and, and decide, but this issue is stronger because it allows for more participation, more liberty, more freedom of life, like all of that. So what? Because you don't have the spiritual gift of convincing, you're obligated to have the bearing with. Like that's what you're actually asked to do. You're not asked to convince somebody that your position is superior to their position. I actually had this conversation years back with a friend. And he was like, yeah, okay, I'll bear with you, but we're going to talk about it later. I said, that's actually not Paul's argument. Paul's argument isn't we'll talk about it later. His, his is, I'll never bring it up again. I will be different for you and never talk about it again if this is ultimately a matter of conscience and worship before God. Now, this doesn't mean you just bring your list of gripes that you really don't care about and go, I need you to do all these things for me. It's about operating in a way that allows a congregation to worship. That's what it is. A group of people to honor God with their lives. I don't just mean showing up at 10.30 on a Sunday. To honor God with their lives. And so there's an obligation to bear with those who are more restricted in how they view life versus more open in how they view life. We do this to serve them, and to build them up. Now, this ability comes from God, and it glorifies God. After he speaks about Jesus not living for himself, he says this, verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement, and it takes endurance to bear with people, it takes endurance to stay with them, to not lead, to not tap out, to not want to convince them that they're wrong, and encouragement, grant you, now if you're a circler or an underliner, underline this thing, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. May the God who grants endurance and encouragement grant you the ability to be okay with each other, to recognize that you're going to have differences on secondary matters, and to absolutely be okay with it. Why do we need the Lord for it? Because we're all difficult. We are. 
We all have things. We all, get, we all get weird about stuff. And we are afraid to maybe even admit it or mention it because we don't want to look weak. Well, not wanting to look weak is pride. It's pride to not want to look a certain way and not go, hey, it would actually honestly really help me if we didn't have alcohol at this event. It would really help me. I just will be uncomfortable the entire time. And in that... I think Paul's argument would be, okay, you never have to ask me about it again. It just won't be there. Not, I'll never invite you again. Like, that's not, that's not the, you know, you who are strong should separate from those who are weak. And go live your strong parties over here and let their weak parties happen over there. Like, that's not the actual thing. It's just to go, all right, this is no thing for me. I, I, I'm absolutely fine giving up. I'm absolutely fine with holding. I'm absolutely fine with that. Why? Because it doesn't change who I am. It doesn't change my heart before God. And it allows you to worship more openly and honestly. It lets you feel loved and supported. Well, then absolutely I will do that. What happens, though, is we draw lines. And we say, you must come to my side. You must come to my side. And I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul, who would have no issue at times correcting gospel issues like he did with Peter, when the gospel was misrepresented and he was leading people astray, that, again, isn't this. For him to go, if it's going to hurt my brother to do something that I'm free to do, I'll just never do it. I will never do it. And he meant that with his whole heart. Because the greater value is as many people as possible being able to, with one voice, glorify the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 6. That together you may, with one voice, in one way, in one accord, that you together may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, which could also be accept one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So he goes through all of that and goes, so just welcome one another. Let them be in. Don't divide up over these goofy secondary things. Don't make it a thing. Don't make a brother or sister uncomfortable coming to your house because you go, oh, oh no, this is how we do it here. That's a position of arrogance. It's not a position of living for the benefit of another person. Now, it's interesting that he's saying this to Christians, the Roman church. He's giving this exhortation, this command to believers because this is an issue in churches. Like, it's not like, hey, you know, with outsiders. Paul even has a way, I'm not going to say don't hang out with outsiders because you'd have to separate from the world. Like, 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 they're everywhere. People who don't know Jesus are everywhere. So you can't separate from them. But when you are together, changed by grace, living life for the glory of God, to more honorably represent him, to reflect him, to love him, to worship him, to be with your brothers and sisters, everything you should do, that motivating factor should be that Jesus did this for you to bring you in. And so you do this for others so that fellowship may be maintained. Versus what we so often do, which is let me convince you that my way is better. Paul was fully convinced that his way was better. He was. He was confident in his view. That's why he goes, we who, right? That there in verse 1, we who are strong. 
He didn't say those who are strong. He was convinced of his view, but was glad to bring that view down and go, okay. Do you know there's a time in the book of Acts where Paul does this? Some people actually think this was Paul's, a mistake Paul made. I don't think it was a mistake Paul made. Later in the book of Acts, there's, you know, Paul's in Jerusalem, and there's some leadership that goes, hey, man, we heard what you're preaching, and it's really confusing some of the guys here, and they're really struggling with who you are and your message, and we know that that's not what the message is, but we have some people here who are under a vow, is the language that they use, right? They're, they're pursuing worship in some way, and we'd really like for you to go under that vow with them so they would recognize that you are for them. And he was like, sign me up. I mean, right, like, like that, 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 I will do it. He shaved his head, right? Like, like, like let's, whatever we need to do. I'll shave, do I need to pay their way? Do I need, what do I need to do to honor these people so that they know that I am for them? I'll do it. What he didn't say in the record was, well, I think they're crazy and you need to tell them they're wrong. But that's what we do so often is we want to convince them that they're wrong. Argumentative, argumentativeness is not a spiritual gift. It's not. It is a hindrance to unity. Correction about things that don't need to be corrected because they're issues of conscience, not a spiritual gift. Hindrance to unity. Bitterness about a brother or a sister in your church family who views something differently than you did or you do, not a spiritual gift, a hindrance to unity. Now, we are not going to be able to move from disunity to unity. And I'm making no no qualms about any specific aspect of our church. But you don't make this move from disunity to unity without rooting yourself right there in the middle, back to what we began with. Jesus didn't live for himself. But for others. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Jesus didn't live for himself, but for others. And the way he lived for others benefited them. Full stop. And so we should do the same. I want to encourage you, if you're having community group conversations or d-group conversations or any other kind of conversation this week, is to be honest with those in your life that you walk through faith with about where you are. Because weakness isn't a weakness. In this sense, is a recognition that God has, in his timing and in his ways, moved people along at different paces. Weakness isn't a weakness in this sense. It is an opportunity to be unified and to serve another person. So you have to be honest with where you are. You have to recognize where you are. I have to do the same kinds of things. Or else, what the strong will inevitably do is inadvertently force somebody to live in a way that dishonors God because their conscience can't handle whatever you are trying to feed them whatever you're trying to show them, whatever you're trying to talk about or have them do. And you might even see this in your own marriage. Perhaps one spouse is all about like Easter weekend festivities and the other one's not. It's just another day. 
And it's like, well, I'm just trying to teach, you know, I'm trying to teach my spouse that it doesn't matter that much. I'm like, that's the wrong approach. You participate in everything. You participate in everything and you do it gladly because every opportunity you are serving somebody else is an opportunity God has to be glorified by your posture toward your spouse, by your posture toward your other brother and sister, by your posture toward your friends, or by your posture toward your community group. If you are not aware or attuned to these things, what will inevitably happen is the, those who are weaker, whose conscience is more sensitive, are going to be left having to dishonor the Lord by going along with the strength. And you put more weight on the bar than they could lift. And they're going to choke underneath it and not be able to tell you because they don't want to embarrass you or themselves. That was the issue that was going on. The reason this is so hard for us, again, is that love of correction. It's the love of correction and getting something right. And even, even the love we feel of bringing that zinger, bzing, that lets them know their position is foolish. That is not the way of Jesus. It is not the way of Jesus. Jesus at times would lament his disciples. Father, you know, how long must I be with you? But he would also never, ever harm them. I'll give you an interaction. Jesus and Peter are having a chat. It usually seems to be Jesus and Peter, doesn't it? They're always talking about something. They're like, and Peter's like, I'm perfect. And Jesus is like, okay, we're going to, maybe later. But Peter's so sure of himself. And he's having this interaction with Jesus towards the end of his life. And, and Peter said, or Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has been asking me for you. He's been asking me for you. Yeah, he's been asking for you. But I have been praying for you. And when I hear that, I go, I wonder how long that was going on before it ever got on Peter's radar. I wonder how long Jesus had been bearing in prayer for Peter before he had that conversation. That Jesus, just at the right time, delivers what had been going on in the background forever. Jesus would bear with weakness. Because for our sake, he became weak. Jesus would walk with people through their weaknesses. Jesus would respond at times to people in their weaknesses. The parable of the woman who goes, help, help. And he's, I think he's trying to teach his disciples a lesson. That's what I think. Um, but you know, he's like, no, no, no. That's for, like, that's for the dogs. I'm not going to th- cast that before you. And the woman responds, like, but yeah, but even the dogs get to have some of the crumbs of the table. Like, we, still are, we can still be here. And Jesus hears that, and he responds to the woman's faith. Like, Jesus responds to weakness all the time. He actually opposes strength in the sense of proud, arrogant people. And what often happens is we present weakness as strength to not, to not have to admit it, or... In our actual strength and faith, we present that in such a way that those who are weak just can't handle it. So here's the challenge for me, for you, for us. I'll even give you a commitment. It's like this, uh, you know, I'll give you a year, if you know what that's from. It's a joke Courtney and I have at our house all the time. I'll give you a year 
Come afterwards, we'll give you candy if you know what that is. This is what I would say. For us all, right here, simple but hard. Welcome your church family as they are for as long as they are. Welcome them as they are for as long as they are. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's, let's put a timeline on it. And the timeline is arbitrary, okay? It should go on forever. But you make this commitment to the people of your church, assuming that they're not in error, assuming that they're not living sinfully. It's like, well, you know, I just really need to not read the word. When I read the word, I feel like I'm violating my conscience, right? Like, that, like don't, don't play those kinds of weirdo games with people, okay? But when I say live with people as they are for as long as they are, you make this commitment to your church family, to your small group, to your D group, you to me, me to you. For the next 12 months, it's a long time, isn't it? But that's what Paul wants, one voice. For the next 12 months, I will make no attempt to change a brother or a sister in a disputable matter. Rather, when I feel the desire to correct, I will just bring it before the Lord. When I feel the desire to go, well, hold on, I think that's the wrong view. Bring it before the Lord. You're mistaken if you think you're not free in this area. Nope, bring it before the Lord. And for those of you who have, me included, issues of conscience, bring it before those in your faith family to provide for you, to provide for the church opportunities to glorify God. I mean, let's just do it as an exchange. What if I said to you, every time we're together, you have an opportunity to glorify God in a unique way? I think I go, sign me up. I want to do that. I want to honor God in a unique way when my community group gets together or when I meet with a brother or sister or when I have discipleship group or I'm just hanging out and I see you. I want to glorify God in that environment. What's my opportunity? Don't correct them on things that don't need to be corrected. Well, I don't want that opportunity. That's what the flesh does, though. I've used this before when we talk about what does the flesh do. My mentor taught it to me in two ways, when you want to look good or be right. It is often an opportunity for the flesh to show up. Look good and be right. The weaker brother or sister might want to look good, and so they won't actually admit where they are. The stronger brother or sister might want to be right, and so they're apt to correct. You don't realize that in those interactions, you are providing opportunities for the flesh and not for the spirit. Rather than just go, you know what? I exist for you. I saw somebody recently, and I said, hey, what can I do for you? And he gave me a pretty hefty task. And I was like, okay. All right. He goes, well, you asked. I said, you're right. I did ask. I should, I should follow through on that request. Because I don't live to please myself. If I go, what can I do for you? And you give me what I can do. And I have the capacity to do it. To go back to our passage last week about love. If I have the capacity to do something that you need. If I have a gift or an ability that can help you or serve you. I should be all the more glad to give it. Yeah, he just smirked. You, laughed, you asked. So I did. So 12 months. I will not challenge you. I will not condemn you. And if you share with me your matter of conscience, or I share with you my matter of conscience, we will joyfully accommodate it. 
No questions asked. I will rid my fridge of alcohol if it allows you to come over more often. If you are more comfortable with that. The wine rack will be empty and full of water bottles if you would be more comfortable coming over. Because that's more important to me than cracking open a bottle. I mean, when you bring it down to that level, isn't that so selfish? I'm not going to change, ever. You change to me, man. I'm okay if you never, ever feel comfortable in my house because you're mistaken in this view of drinking. It would just be bizarre if we bring that out to its fullest extent. Now, here's the hard thing in church life. You, can't act, you, can, you can make a rule and go, hey, to join Genesis, you can never drink, or you have to always come to every Good Friday service, or you have to always come on Sunday, or you have to always, like, you could make a rule like that, but you actually don't fix the problem, you just try and control the flesh. Flesh loves rules. What is much more difficult is what is presented in Romans 14 and 15, which is being with people, understanding them, and committing to bear with them and them committing to bear with you. That is actually the realm where the Spirit does work in human hearts versus legislating rules that people must follow because you will rebel against them. The realm of the Spirit is the realm of the faith family living in these ways that honor and glorify God. And that's what he has for us. That's what's awesome about you know, so often, like when we're reading the Bible, you, you, you get to the end, you're like, oh my gosh. And we, we look for these, again, these super lofty applications of scriptural ideas, and he's like, hey, bear with each other, welcome each other, accept them. Accept them as your brother or sister. That's what you should do. The same way you take your crazy uncle in every Thanksgiving. You should take your crazy uncle in every single Sunday that you gather. The same way, hey, look out, you might be the crazy uncle. And that's okay, too, because it's not about presenting strength or presenting weakness, but glorifying the Lord and how we care for each other. And that is what is awesome, because to do that, you actually have to give yourself over by faith to the Lord and go, okay, you do it. You do this thing through us, because we can't just make all these rules to fix it. You have to do it. That's what's great. That's where the Lord is honored and glorified. And that's where we as a church family have to deal with our own issues, bear with the others. It's hard in the trenches Christian life work, but it is so good because it teaches us every day that we live for the benefit of others and we live for the good of others because Jesus did that for us.